You're listening to a Broadmoor Podcast production. We've been in Romans chapter 8 for the last few weeks. As we listen today, it's our prayer that we'll be challenged, encouraged, and ultimately made to look more like Jesus through his word revealed to us. Well, good morning, church. How are we? Great. If you have your Bibles this morning, would you open to Romans chapter 8? Romans 8 is going to be our text for today. This will mark our third week in this incredible chapter, but I pray by God's grace we will make it through today. But before we begin, if you haven't noticed, this section and this section and other places in the church are filled up with incredible teenagers and group leaders and ministry volunteers who are a part of Together Weekend. Together Weekend is something for our seventh or through our middle, middle school through high school. Uh, and they have an opportunity to dive in over the course of two days into God's word, into small group study, into community, into service, into encouragement with one another. And no doubt this week has been great. I think this week we've had just a part of Broadmoor's student ministry. Uh, we have grouped together with other churches, but our ministry uh, has about 300 students who came through Broadmoor. Your teenagers, they are here today in this room. So could we give them a hand clap of affirmation this morning for making this a priority in their life? And no doubt you have been praying for them like I have that God would change their lives continuously as he has done ours. Uh, And no doubt he has done that and will continue to do that this morning. So before we jump into our sermon, would you join me in praying that God would continue to bless what he started in the course of Together Weekend. Let's pray together, church. Father, we do love you and we thank you. It is always a joy to gather together in your house and in your name. But it is especially incredible when we are coming off a weekend like we've just had. That Friday evening and all day yesterday and then even into this morning, the hearts and minds of of teenagers across Madison and Ridgeland, they're focused on you. They are are training on you, God, and and you are calling them to something in their life, uh, steps of obedience that is going to bring you glory and them good. And and God, I know that many of them are absolutely exhausted, so I pray that you give them supernatural energy that is beyond a Red Bull or any energy drink. But God, it'll be something that they would continue to fight for holiness and glory and give all the praise and, and honor to you. And so, Lord, I ask your blessing over them and their families as they get rest this afternoon and they move back onto their mission fields tomorrow. Lord, bless them. Give them favor. Use them in mighty and powerful ways. I'm thankful that we came together as churches this weekend, but, Lord, I pray that your creation would come together and bring you glory, and I pray that you would do it through these students. Jesus, we love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, ladies and gentlemen, as we get started today, we are in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through uh, 39, and, and, and in these verses, I told you a couple of weeks ago when we embarked in chapter 8, we are in my favorite chapter in all of the Bible, uh, and today we are in my favorite section of that chapter, uh, for this section is absolutely rich and it is good, um, as we are going to, to jump in. I'm praying, as I've prayed all week long, as I prayed last night, I prayed the first thing when I woke up this morning, that in the same way that this section has brought so much joy and hope and encouragement to me over the course of my life as I have been in this book, I pray that it would do the same for you. 
And not just for today and not just for this week as you think back on this message or this section of Scripture, but for the remainder of our time on this side of eternity, I pray that the truths of this chapter ring in your heart. But I want to remind you, before we jump into this sermon today, something that I told you when we started this book, that this letter, this letter of Romans, the book to the church at Rome, if you allow it, if, if you read it, if you hear it, if you apply it, if you trust it, it will forever change you. Like, like you, you can't not be changed. Like, it is going to do something. It is going to affect your life in some sort of way. It will give you a grander and clearer picture of God than you have ever known. It will help you better understand his love for the world, his design for his creation, and his purpose for your life. But you have to be honest with it. Here's what I mean by that. Let's remember the number one rule when it comes to biblical engagement, meaning every time you open this book or every time that you, you click on that Bible app on your phone and you read scripture, here's the number one rule to, to proper engagement with the scriptures. The Bible will always inform you. You will not inform the Bible. So, so we need to remember that, guys. We, we need to remember the Bible will always inform you. We will never inform the Bible. And you may be saying, Josh, that's a given. Why would you even bring that up? Well, here's the deal. Typically, that's a given when we're reading through like numbers and lamentations. When we're reading through the list of the Bible and all the genealogies. But when we get to the really emotional and well-known areas of the Bible, we begin to say things like this. Well, I really think that thing happened in, in this section of the Bible, and it's, it's probably dealing with, with this thing. And, and you have no chapter, you have no verse to back up where your core belief comes from. And then we go to read the Bible, and, and that thought is pervasive, and it's now the lens that you look through when you read. That is you informing the Bible as you read. What can happen when we do that is that our best thoughts— and our favorite practices will begin to determine how we read and interpret the Bible. But what should happen is the Bible should determine our best thoughts and favorite actions. So with that understanding, let's jump into this incredible section. Let's jump in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose. All right, so, so Paul starts out with, a, with a, a pretty quick statement that generally we read through because we want to get to the good stuff. We want to know that God's working something for our good. But don't miss what Paul is saying because there's going to be a pretty big shift in this verse compared to everything else he said in this book of Romans so far. Paul is saying something. He, he says this, as we know. So think, Paul is writing to a group of Christians, and he says to them, as you should know, this should be elementary to you. Paul is saying that something that would be and should be common knowledge for every believer, something so profound and so life-giving, is elementary for every follower of Christ. So what is that elementary thing that all followers of Christ should know? And we know what? That for those who love God, God works all things together for good. 
Now, guys, I know you may have heard this verse a lot, and you may have quoted this verse a lot, but in this verse is great, incredible hope. But in this verse, there's a huge shift in language. Up to this point, in all of Romans, everything has been about how God has been the worker. God saved you by grace, through faith. God sees you. God loves you. God restores you. God does it all. But here, Paul makes a change. And he says, for this we know, that that all things work for good for those who love him. So the measure that Paul is using here is not God's love towards people, but saved people's love towards God. That's a big deal. There's more to that as we get into the the remainder of this chapter and into chapter 9. Here's where the great comfort, though, comes into focus. What are all things? If God is going to take all things and, and he's going to work in all of those things and it's going to be, be good for you, what do all things encompass? Well, if you were just joining us today, you may want to go back and read the, the, the first and middle portion of chapter 8. And essentially it is this, how is a Christian to understand the suffering in their life? Meaning this, that there are some people who may believe that if I give my life to Christ, then my life is going to be great. I'll never have another problem. Jesus says that's not true. He said, in this life, you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome this life. He's already told us that we are going to to face hard times, to face struggles, to to, to face suffering for his name's sake. Like, we already know that, and so there are people who would say, well, if you give your life to Christ, then all things will be better. That, that's, that's bad evangelism. So Paul writes in the first part of chapter 8 that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And from there, that even in our suffering, it is not because of condemnation. The things that happen to you in this life, believer— Since you have given your life to Christ, the the, the hard, the struggle, the pain that you've experienced is not God punishing you because that has been taken care of on the cross. It's a part of this life. It's a part of us still living in a fallen world. But what God is saying is it's not wasted. That every pain and every tear, every struggle that we face, God's got it and he's doing something through it. So what are all things? Paul is telling the church at Rome and us today that if you belong to God, if God holds you, all of you, the busted and the broken you, you can trust that he is doing something good through it all, with all the pieces, all things. That's not just the hard, the shady, the bad, and the the sad, but it certainly does include those things. So how awesome is that thought? Everything, everything that has ever happened to you, God is using, God is doing something eternally beautiful in your life. Before I just move on, because I have a lot of stuff to cover and 20 minutes to cover it, I don't want to move past this. Because across this room, and this is no respecter of age, Everybody has scars for living on this side of eternity. Everybody has pain and struggle and hurts that you have faced. Some that you have brought on yourself and some that somebody else brought on you. 
And for so long, you don't know what to do with that. So in our culture, sad as it may be, a lot of times when we come to a house of worship, we stop at the car, clean up our tears, put on the smiley face, and walk right in and say, how are you, brother and sister? But deep down inside, you are absolutely crushed because this life is suffocating to you. And honestly, we look around the room in a place where we should be vulnerable and transparent. And what we do instead of trusting a brother and sister to help us is we begin to compare ourselves with each other. And it's in that comparison that we lose the joy that God has set before us. What we'll begin to say is, why don't they suffer like me? Why do they get the good stuff and I get the hard stuff? Why, Why does all the bad things always happen to me? God, where are you? We've all been there. And the hope that Paul brings to the church at Rome and to us today is all of those tears, all of those fears, all of that pain God holds in his sovereign hand. And I promise you, church, he's doing something with it. He is creating something in you that is eternal and lasting. But then this is what is said. For those who are called according to his purpose, now, now, the statement can feel kind of heavy. No, no doubt many questions are going to flow from it. Here are some questions that I have as I read through it. Who are the called? If, if, if all that, that good news, if you heard me talking about God holding your pain and your tears and, and him doing something with it, it's going to bring him glory and bring you good, and you start to well up with, with at least some kind of excitement about what God is doing in your life, then you hear, for those who are called according to his purpose, and you think, whoa, time out. That's not for everybody. It's for those who are called according to his purpose. That's where these questions pop up. Okay, then who who gets to be called? How are they called? This is an important question for us because if he's calling, I don't want to miss it. Am I called? Have I been called? Did, Did I miss the call? Did I respond rightly? Help me understand. And most importantly, what are his purpose? If, if we're called according to those purposes, what, what are those purposes for, for me? All good and right questions that Paul will begin to answer in the, the following passages. Look with me, if you will, verse 29. For those whom he, that's God, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. All right, so in this passage and the next verse, there are a lot of buzzwords that can potentially get you distracted from the main point of the text. Let's go over a few. Foreknew and predestined. Let's start with foreknew. What does foreknew mean in the biblical context? What, what, is, what does this mean from this scripture? Foreknew means that God knew everything before everything. God knew everything before everything. What does predestined mean? God planned everything before everything. So God knew it and God planned it. All right? So God foreknew and also predestined his followers for a very specific reason. A lot of times we get caught up in the buzzwords. The buzzwords are pointing us to something, something great, something grand. God saw your life before the foundations of the world were created, and he's going to do something incredible through it. What is that something incredible? Here is what God's word says. To be conformed into the image of his son. 
And you may sit here and say, today and say, Josh, that, that doesn't seem so climactic. What it, I thought it was something greater than that. No, no, no. This is, this is salvation right before our eyes. Because of the sin that separated us from God, because of, because of Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve, and because we have sin nature in us, every day we look more and more like our first father, Adam. Every day there is more sinfulness in us until, until Christ meets us and calls us by our name. And it's in that day that everything begins to change for us. Because of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we now get to look more and more like Christ who saved us instead of Adam who damned us. And so as we understand Romans 8, this this ending part of this chapter, Paul is giving a call to salvation. This is what it is to look like. That God in his foreknowledge and God in his planning set you on a path that you are now by his grace and the power that he has put inside of you looking more and more like Christ every day. That's a big word that we talk about in seminary. It's called sanctification. Meaning Christian, today you are more like Christ than you were yesterday. And by his grace tomorrow you will be more like him than you were today. The point is this that those who are in Christ will be conformed to his image. So often we view salvation as something that is about us and about our glory. It's not. Salvation is about Christ and his glory. Let me, let me explain this. Paul's argument up until this point is don't use Christ's forgiveness for your own selfishness. His blood applied to your life is not a license for you to be able to go and sin. Some may think, and it's this wrongly think, now that I'm saved, I can do whatever I want to do. I can be more like me, the, more, the, the me that I want to be more than anything else because I no longer have to worry about the punishment for what I do. That could not be further from the truth. But now that you're saved, you are now free and empowered to be more and more like Christ who saved you. The question isn't now, believer, what can I get away with? Where's the line that I have to toe to make sure that that I can do what I want to do and God not be mad at me? That's not the believer's mindset. It shouldn't be. The believer's mindset is now shifted. It's, God, what else can I do to bring you glory? What else can I do to point people to Christ? What else? How can I live my life? What can I say? Who can I be around? What can I be a part of that brings you the most glory? That's the heart of the believer. Why? Paul says it, finishing up this verse, in order that he, who's he? Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's what the ESV says. Maybe you're using a different translation. I think I like a word different than than firstborn here. It is preeminent is the word I would rather in this moment. In order that he might be preeminent among brothers. So that Christ be more important than anything else. Our salvation is to point to that truth. Jesus is more important than everything. So a question that we ask ourselves this morning in response to an incredible together weekend and in response to God's grace on our life, does our life do that? Does our life prove that Christ is more important than everything else on this side of eternity? 
And this, this isn't something to bring guilt and shame because no doubt if you're like me, there are plenty of areas that we say, uh, no, we probably need to make some course correction, then make it. Because if you are seeing that now, the conviction of the Spirit is making you aware that there are other things that you are holding with preeminence in your life. They are more important than Christ, then we repent of those things. It's not just a I'm sorry and we continue in our sin. It's an I'm sorry and I'm turning. I'm brokenhearted for what I've done and I'm turning from that sin back to God. This is what we do. Salvation is not about us but it's certainly good news to us. But how do you know, going back to our questions from earlier, how do you know if, if we were one of the ones that God foreknew? How, how do you know if you were the one of the ones that God has predestined? Look at verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All right, there's a whole lot of words you probably don't use in everyday language, but they are really important to you, I promise. Here's the point. God, God, God knew fully, foreknew. God planned fully before everything predestined. How do you know? If you're called, how do you know? Or how do you know if, you're, if he knew everything about you and, and he's predestined you? It says here, a saved person is called by God. Called. This idea that God calls the dead to life, specifically by their name. If you've been saved, it is only by God's grace through faith in Christ that you have been saved. It's not a work of man, so no one can boast. This is what the Bible teaches clearly, not just in Romans, but throughout Scripture. God is gracious in whom he saves. If you are saved, it is only because God has extended grace to you. No one in this room or on this earth was saved because they were good enough. Nobody in this room or on this planet right now was saved because they had a lot of potential. You were saved because God was gracious towards you. You've been saved only by God's grace through faith in Christ and only because he called you and drew you to Christ. Here's how the Holy Spirit works in your life. Here's how salvation starts in you. I want you to write this down. You can turn there if you want, John 6, 44. But I want you to write this down because some of you are going to leave with a lot more questions than you came in here with, and that's completely fine. We have eight minutes. Uh, We're not going to make it. We're going to make it. It's going to be great. John 6, 44 says this. No one can come to the Father. No one can come to me. That's Christ. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Let me read it again. John 6, 44. No one can come to me, that's Christ, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Church, when he calls you, from that call, you respond through faith in Christ. You are immediately justified. Going back to the Romans 8 passage, you were justified. Remember the sermon that we talked about, um, propitiation and expiation? We won't go into it. Propitiation is the vertical work where Christ goes to the Father and atones for our sins. Expiation is where our sins are forgiven as far as the east is from the west. And in that moment, we are justified. Sanctification is a lifetime. Justification happens in a moment. 
And because of that truth, because our names are written in heaven, one day we will be glorified. What does that mean? It is the completion of our redemption. On this side of eternity, the believer is becoming more and more like Christ here. But on the other side of eternity, one day in our heavenly home, we will be completely transformed into his glory. We will share in the glory of Christ. Paul said earlier in this chapter, we are co-heirs with him. Means that the glory that the Son has will soon be ours. That is called glorification. So in that good news, what is our response to this? All right. Remember the section that we are, we are coming from into this, 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 this few verses is a section of how a Christian, how a follower of Christ is to, to suffer well. So with the weight of the world pressing down, wondering if this current state that we are in is proof that God has taken his love away from us, does this mean the sufferings that you experience, the pain that you endure, the fact that you say, I'm a Christian, and the world is increasingly growing more hostile towards you? You would think that God would protect his own, right? You would think that God would make it easier for people who trust him, right? So these thoughts begin to invade, and here are some of those thoughts. Does he still love me? Do I still belong to him? Will this suffering tear me away from his presence? Now we get to the really good soaring news of this this chapter. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to all of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So Paul's point is this. What, what is it? What is it that we should say to all of this? If God stands in your place, if God says, you are mine, who has the audacity to stand and say, no, he's not. No, she's not. So Paul writes, and he kind of gives this illustration. He said, if, if, if God, the Father, gave Christ the Son as an atonement for us, like if he was willing to do that, his one and only Son, what would ever make us believe that he would pull back on his covenant with us? If he did the fullest extent of his love at the cross, he can't love us any more than he already does, and he's already, we know, foreknown us. Knows everything there is to know about our life, and he still did it anyway. What in the world would change his mind? And you may sit here this morning and say, well, Josh, I, I've got a couple of ideas. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? All right, so maybe God in his grace stands in our stead because he loves us. But we also have an enemy, and he's called the great accuser. And constantly he is bringing charges up. I would say when I think through theology, I think this may be the only time that the enemy starts to tell the truth. Where it's constantly bombarding the Father in heaven with accusations on what we've done, where we've been, the things we've been a part of. You saved them. You sent your son to die for them. And this is what they're still doing. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Here's the response. It's God who justifies. So who's going to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised and is at the right hand of, the, of, the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. What does it mean to intercede? It means to pray. It means to speak a better word. So every time the enemy speaks lies, or maybe sometimes even speaks the truth about what we've done, Christ is at the right hand, the place of power, and he's speaking a better word over us. And it's eternal. He never tires of it. So we have a Father in heaven who loved us. We have a King in heaven in Christ who intercedes for us. We have a Holy Spirit, as we talked about last week, who indwells in us and prays on our behalf even when we don't have words to pray. So Paul comes up with this soaring end. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or the sword? Uh, in Greek literature, this is, this is building. He, he starts this, this list with, with tribulation, like, like trouble, like, like kind of something small and minor, then to distress, then to persecution, famine, uh, famine, nakedness, danger, or the sword. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And then he quotes Psalm 44, 22. That's important. Write that, write that down. Psalm 44, 22. Here's, here's the quote. As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, that doesn't sound very encouraging. We were, we were moving in a good direction, Paul. Why do you drop Psalm 44, 22 in? I ask you to write that down because you need to go read Psalm 44. It is an incredible psalm that is built on this premise. The sufferings of God's people, when, when the psalm writer is writing this, the sufferings that they are experiencing is because they have been faithful to God. And there's a cry in their heart to say, God, where are you? Why are you allowing us to go through this? So, so he quoted 44, 22. Let me read the remaining four verses of, of Psalm 44. So this would be Psalm 44, 23 and following. The psalmist writes, Awake! Why are you sleeping, God? Arouse yourself. Don't reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our afflictions and oppression? Our soul is bowed down to the dust and our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come for us. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Church, that's a prayer I can understand. That's a prayer that I've prayed. I may not have prayed it in those words, but I've prayed it many times. But the heart behind that psalm is this, that even in our anguish, God is still faithful and he will provide God provided for his people then, and he provides for his people now. So if you find yourself here, there may be this feeling of, God, where are you? I need you to act right now. Verse 37, going back to Romans 8, verse 37. So in light of that, Paul says, no. And all these things, all those things we just mentioned, all of Psalm 44 and the list he gave right before it, and all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The Greek here is a little bit more fun than that translation. It's more like super conquerors. 
And he says, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor heights or depths, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's good news, church. So here's our take home for today as our worship team comes up. I don't want to rush this. This is really important. So don't, don't pack up and miss this part. This only applies to Christians. This only applies to people who have put their hope and trust in Christ. Because if you haven't, what you've done instead is put your hope and trust in you. And everything that we've read today does not apply to you. It can. It just doesn't right now. So the hope that we speak of in this church, the hope that we speak of in this scripture, this is for those who are in Christ. So Christian. There is great news in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, before the foundations of the earth were established, saw everything there was to see about your life. He planned everything about your life. Why? So that you would become more like Christ every day. He called you by your name. He knows you. He sees you. And he loves you. And in that, he justified you. That, that means he saved you totally and completely. You were forgiven and free from sin's control. And one day, brothers and sisters, we will all share in the glory of Christ. And there's nothing that can ever change that. Nothing in this world that can take it away. Nothing that you do can change his mind. God's love is far greater than anything we could ever imagine. So church, this is our confidence today and every day and into eternity. Christ in Christ alone. He is truly where our hope is found. So here's our opportunity for response this morning. If you were here today and you hear words like foreknew and predestined and it makes you, makes you nervous, don't miss the fact that the, the whole reason for salvation, the whole reason for the, the foreknowledge and the predestining our lives is to conform us into the image of his son. To, to, to take us away from, from the conforming to the image of Adam and now we are being conformed to the image of Christ and that's good news. We are called by God's grace. That's how you know. I can issue a call. But until God makes your heart alive, you can't respond to it. So I think, as I read the scripture and I understand it, the right way to respond is, God, awaken my dead heart, please. And I know I'm speaking to a lot of people who do church a lot of their life. That prayer doesn't say, God, make me religious. God, make me love church. God, make me to where I can hide my sin well so people think better of me. No. God, awaken my dead heart that I may put faith in Christ. You pray that prayer, and if God extends that grace to you, life is forever changed. There's still going to be hard, but it's only shaping you to be what he's calling you to be. So with that invitation comes your opportunity to respond to it. 
I'll be down front. There'll be some other folks down front. If you want to pray, there's an altar that will be open to pray. But right where you are, everybody in this room, if you are not a believer, beg God to awaken your heart this morning. If you're a Christian this morning, praise God for doing just that in you. Thank him for that. But pray for your brothers and sisters who you know aren't saved. Ask God to awaken them. Ask God to to call them by their name that they may experience the goodness of God. Church, would you pray with me? Father, I love you. And I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I know we, we attempted to cover a lot today and I'm so sorry that I've, I've maybe missed and jumped over some things. But Lord, I pray that what was to be said was said. And you would allow our hearts to, to take it in. Lord, I pray for the believers in this room, myself included. We thank you. We thank you. Thank you so much for calling us to life. For taking all the pieces, all the mess, all the broken, and putting it back together in a way that's going to glorify you and will be good for us. I pray for brothers and sisters who are soon to be in the kingdom, Lord. I pray that you would call them by their name. God, awaken their dead hearts to believe and put hope in Christ. Oh, Jesus, help us. Help us to respond rightly and to worship you fully. We love you, Lord, and it's in your name that we pray. Church, if you would stand and respond.